you have a Bible this morning, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 14. It's our last sermon in Acts for uh, a few weeks as we um, take the next several weeks and talk under the banner of Go Live, uh, um, kind of who we are as a church and some of the things that God's putting before us. So um, we're going to be in Acts, chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, some on the sides of the tech booth back there, feel free to grab one. If you need to grab one, you can borrow it or keep it as you have need. And if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open up your app right now, find our live event, um, and follow along with all the scriptures and sermon notes and all that kind of stuff. So, all of that in play, let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into the word together. Um, We, your people, Father, purchased by the blood of Jesus that we just sung about. Um, uh, Gathering like saints all over the world are doing. Casting down our crowns around the glassy sea. We're here to honor you, God, and you have honored us with your presence. And so now we're asking, God, as, as, a, as a part of this encounter, as a part of this experience, of this relationship, uh, that you would um, come and speak to us. We, your people, have said some things to you that are true, and now we want you to say things to us that are true. And so open up your word and challenge us and push us and encourage us and um, uh, uh, heal us and comfort us and give us everything that we need. Your word, uh, Jesus said, your word is life. And so we want to experience that. Now unleash it on us. Don't hold back, even a stitch of it. Not a stitch, unleash it on us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Okay, so in Acts chapter 14, now... I don't know if any of you actually do this or not, and if you do, please don't raise your hand, because if you do and you raise your hand, everybody around you will judge you. I just need you to know that. You take the bottle of shampoo or whatever hair product you use in the shower, and you look at it, and it says, hey, there's you know 15,000 warnings about ways not to use this, and in the state of California, it causes all sorts of problems. Apparently, in Texas, it doesn't, but in the state of California, it causes problems. And then, somewhere along the way, about 10 paragraphs down, it feels like you get into the instructions. Wet hair. That's a good first step. Yes, everybody on that? Okay, put it with a little dollop in your hand, and then what do you do? You lather, you rinse, and then... You always repeat. Now, here's my question. Why is that necessary if your product works, right? Especially somebody for somebody like me. Like, I don't have that much hair. Do I really need to wash it twice? It's a fair question, is it not? So when it comes to lather, rinse, repeat, it's always the repeat part that gets me. I get lather and rinse, I do, but it's the repeat part that messes me up. However, I brought that up to say in Acts chapter 14, we get basically lather, rinse, repeat. Because Paul here on his first missionary journey has gone into towns, he has preached the gospel, he has been run out of town, and he's gone to the next town. And you know what happens? He preaches the gospel and he gets run out of town. And so he goes to the next town and he preaches the gospel, gets run. So we're on this cycle of lather, rinse, repeat. And in Acts chapter 14, he has left Iconium and he has now moved to a town Um, Excuse me, Uh, you'll see in verse 8, he has moved to a town called Lystra. Now, just to locate this in your mind, all of this is in modern day Turkey, and as well to locate this in terms of the Bible. All of these churches that are going to be mentioned, um, uh, uh, Perga and and Antioch um, in in Asia Minor, there, and Lystra and Derby and all these places, they make up what at the time was called the Galatian region. So when Paul writes the letter of 
Galatians to the churches of Galatia. Who's he writing to? This whole crowd that he's um, been, um, you know, preaching the gospel to and getting run out of town by. That's the whole deal, okay? That's where he is. And so in Acts chapter 14, verse 8, Paul and Barnabas have been run flat out of Iconium, and now they're in Lystra, verse 8. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well because there are some people who don't want to be well. You know anybody like that? He said in a loud voice, verse 10, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began Walking. Okay, so we've seen this once before in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John do the same thing with the guy who was crippled at the gate called Beautiful just outside the temple, lame from birth, and he gets up, right? No hope, and he gets up. Why does Jesus do these kind of miracles? Because you and I spiritually are at a place where we are lame from birth, and we have no hope of getting up unless Jesus steps into our lives. Do I need to back that up and say it again? We have no hope. We have no capacity in us, lame from birth, until the power of God comes on us in Jesus' name and sets us free to live, to really live, to get up, if you will. That's, what the, God, that's the good news that Jesus has given to you and to me. Verse 11, and when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanian, the local dialect, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now just put a pause there for one second. Um, this guy named Ovid, who was a historian and a writer, he tells us why they jumped to this conclusion. There's an old um, um, fable or fairy tale or story that circulated in that region that Hermes and Zeus, the Greek gods, had come down um, and it uh, gone from uh, house to house and town to town and everybody would be like, no, you're not staying with us. No, you're not staying with us. No, you're not staying with us. And finally, an old couple who lived on top of a mountain took them in and cared for them. And of course, the gods then blessed them and they built a temple and blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, this has some, they didn't just make this up. Like this has some uh, um, kind of history in their culture. Verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Today I want to talk about courage. And C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and he says that courage is not a virtue in and of itself. It's the testing point of every virtue. And so the courage that we're going to talk about today and try to paint the picture of what this looked like is really a, a testing point of every, uh, I mean, of, of virtue. It's at the testing point of virtue. And the first way that courage expresses itself in this particular story goes something like this. Um, courage to give God credit. Sometimes 
It takes courage to give God the credit that he is due. When you live your life in such a way that it releases God's power into the world, there will come a temptation, doesn't matter what uh, 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 vocation you're in, what setting you're in, when you live in a way that releases God's power and goodness into the world, there will come a temptation where somebody will look at you and say, hey, man, you're a really nice person. You're doing a really good job. Hey, you know, that's a pretty cool thing that you did. And at that moment, you have the, you have the, the temptation before you to receive the credit or to give the credit where it's due, the courage to give God credit. This is not the first time we've seen this. John the Baptist, crowds roll up on him. Hey, so are you the guy? We need to know. John, look, there's a guy coming. I'm, if, I, if I stooped down and untied his sandals, I wouldn't even be worthy of that. He's got to increase. i got to decrease. I'm not the guy. Peter and, and John healing the man outside of the gate that I mentioned a while ago. They rushed out into the crowd and they said, why do you think it is by our power that this man is made whole? No, I'm telling you now, he is whole because of Jesus. Um, another example of Philip in Acts chapter 8. Philip and Simon, the magician, the, the magician comes along. He's like, hey, listen, you should give me this power. I see what you're doing here. You should give me this power and we can multiply our efforts here. Philip's like, you think this is my power? This is not my power. Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter with Cornelius, um, when he receives the vision, he goes to Cornelius, the, the Gentile's house, and Cornelius comes out and he falls down before him. And Peter could have said, like I would have been tempted to do, it's about time somebody recognized this. Th uh, thank you so much. Peter said, get up. Get up. What are you doing? I'm just a man like you courage to give God credit. And so what would that look like for you and me? Um, I think it would be a couple things. Number one, an unequivocal um, declaration that God is God and we are not. Look at verse 15. Uh, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Hey, you want to know what's happening here? God's flexing and I'm just standing here watching. Like, you really want to know how this is going down. It's because God is God, and I am not God. And by the way, you're not God either. I'm just like you. We're in the same boat here. And so uh, the, the second part, as far as courage to give God credit, no matter the setting, no matter what this looks like for you, an unequivocal affirmation of the true story. There at the end of verse 15, he says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he goes on to say, in past generations, God let you walk like you wanted to walk, but all the while he was giving you rain and food, right? Right. That's because he loved you and he was trying to make sure that you understood that this was from God. So an unequivocal declaration that God is God and I am not. And secondly, an unequivocal affirmation of the true story. Can I just say as a pastor, sometimes it's pretty tempting for those of us in ministry to take credit for things that are happening when really God is the one who's given, who needs the credit, deserves the credit. Now, here's the thing. Um, it's not uniquely pastors. It's just exceptionally so. And so here, the courage to give God credit is humility at its testing point couple of examples. I've been thinking a lot about Harvard lately as I'm trying to wrap up some of the stuff that I'm doing for some of my studies. 
And a couple of things have come to mind even this week. Um, right over here, about where Mike and Paige are sitting, um, during Harvey uh, uh, ministry, there was a lady standing right there. They had just, they, she was from Mississippi, had just cleaned up uh, uh, breakfast. They were getting ready to go out. And so I was there to make sure they got out and pray for them and that kind of thing. And she looked around and she said, and I'm not looking at her as this is happening. She looked around and she said, man, y'all have a beautiful church. And I said, yes, they are great people. I wasn't trying to like Jesus juke her or anything. I just like, that's what came out of my mouth because that's what I was thinking about you. Yes, we do have a beautiful church. Some of you are a little more beautiful than others. I get that. But I mean, for the, like you have, we do, we've got a beautiful church. She said, oh, I, I mean, you're right. I was talking about the building, but I understand what you're saying. And I was like, this is what God has done. So to affirm the true story. Uh, professor that uh, I'm working with and engaged, he, he said, um, in light of some of the Harvey stuff that, is, that happened, he said this, he says, man, you've got some smart people down there. I said, you don't know them, obviously, because <laughs> yes, of course we've got some smart people. But I said to him, I said, but here's the thing regarding that. I said, God was always so far ahead of us, we were just trying to keep up. I'm grateful for smart people, believe me. But God was so far ahead of us, we were just trying to keep up. That's the true story. So this unequivocal declaration that God is God and I am not, and the unequivocal affirmation that there is a truer story out there than the one I'm doing. You don't have to baptize it. You don't have to dress it up in Jesus' garb or anything like that. Just tell the truth. So the question goes something like this. What is it then? What, what, what's the big deal if pagans offered sacrifice? They're rolling out oxen. They've got garland. I mean, Paul could have had steak and salad. Why, why is this a big thing, right? Why is this a thing that he needs to stop? Number one, because God would know. And secondly, because if any of those folks came to faith later, guess what? They would know too. They would know too. Don't, don't reinforce fairy tales. Don't reinforce false narratives, just tell the truth. Have the courage to give God credit. And they barely restrained him, is what verse 18 said. Second expression of courage found in verse 19, 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, for all of you who are not up to speed in here, we're not talking about 1960s stoning. We're talking about 60s stoning, okay, like different thing. They actually picked up rocks and threw them at you until you were dead. That's the kind of stone we're talking about. And they did this to Paul, verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about, don't miss this, when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. What city? The city that he had just got drug out of, left for dead from. Okay? And so courage to give God credit is one thing. Secondly, and this is a, 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 it's a challenge, but let's just set it out there for you and for me. Courage to live as though dead. Courage to live as though dead. That's what Paul did here. Verse 19, what, what, I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to throw stones at him? They already did that. And they left him for dead in doing so. And so the phrase that kept coming to mind this week um, was the phrase, holy abandonment. Now, there's kind of a a pastoral danger in saying something like that. And so I want to address the pastoral danger as well. But this holy abandonment that is not spiritual recklessness. Like, 
sometimes you can be spiritually stupid. Anybody up to speed on that? This is holy abandonment, courage to live as though dead. Let me just give you a couple of statements here. Holy abandonment says, my life is not my own. Spiritual recklessness says, well, I know what God wants for me. Now, why is that reckless? Because sometimes we miss it. Anybody? Even Jesus. Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, what you want. We put everything on the altar to say, God, whatever you need from me, whatever you want from me, my life is a blank check and I have fully endorsed it to you. Whatever you want. That's holy abandonment. My life is not my own. Um, Holy abandonment says, I will do whatever pleases God. It could be the most menial task. It could be the most monumental task. I will do whatever pleases God. Spiritual recklessness says, I'll make sure that what I do is important. And I'll leave some of the other stuff for somebody else. What if the most important, um, most meaningful, and most purpose-filled thing that you could do that would please God would be the thing that nobody saw? What if it was the most uncomfortable thing that you could step into, but that would be the thing that would send God over the moon for you? Lastly, holy abandonment says something like this. I am not what's most important here. But spiritual recklessness sounds something like this. Hey, I need to be part of this story. I need to be part of this story. Paul um, wrote it two different ways in, in, um, in two different letters. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all what? All what? Have died. To have the courage to live as though dead. That's what we're talking about. And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him, not how, who, uh, for their sake died and was raised. And then in Galatians, again, this letter to this particular area, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. Folks, that's not a bumper sticker. Like he considered himself dead. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, When I was in college ministry a couple of decades ago now, it's hard to believe that's the case, but a couple of decades ago, one of the um, gals that we worked with um, got T-boned by an 18-wheeler. And it, just, it was just like that. And um, she was engaged to another guy in our ministry. And um, he stood up on the platform at the funeral. And he said, hey, we're gathered here in something called a funeral. But I need to tell you, her name was Stormy. Stormy had her own funeral three or four years ago. Because three or four years ago, she sold out to Jesus and said, whatever you want from me, I will gladly give. That has stuck with me for 20-something years. That you and I would have the courage to have my own, I would have the courage to have my own funeral before someone else has one for me. The, The 
courage to live as though dead. That's Paul. And that's what he, he shows for us. He shows for us a kind of boldness at its, at its testing point, a kind of dependence on God even at its testing point. Courage to give God credit. That tests our humility. Courage to live as though dead tests our dependence as well as our boldness. And lastly, a courage to keep doing ministry in verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, which I just can't hardly get over that. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So let's talk about what Paul did as he kept doing ministry. Number one, um, he went back into the city. The very place, can we just say it one more time? The very place where the night, I mean, just hours before even, there were some dudes in there who were mad enough at him to pick up stones and throw them at him until he was left for dead. They drug him out of the city. They didn't like put him on a cart. They drug him out of the city, tossed, shut the gates, and were like, okay, good, we're done with that. He got up and he went back into the city. Church family, can I just ask this pastoral question? Is there anything in your life that you need to face like Paul did in order to keep doing ministry, the things that God's given you to do? Is there anything you need to go back to, look at square in the eye? He went back into the city. Second thing that he did, verse 21, they moved on to Derby When they had preached the gospel, can we just be clear? In all of these other cities, whenever they had preached the gospel, what had happened? They had gotten run out of town, in one case, stoned. So they continued to preach the gospel there. They went to Derby. They're like, okay, leather rinse, repeat. We're going to preach the gospel now. Y'all be ready to leave. Um, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, then they did what? They returned to Lystra. <laughs> they went back again, just in case. They returned to Lystra and then to Iconium. Previously, they had been run out. In Antioch, they had been run out of there too. He kept preaching the gospel. Why? Because there's a world out there that no matter how they treat us, they still need to hear it. There's a world out there that no matter how they respond, they still need to hear it. There's a world out there that they are lame, and even though they don't know, they don't have the power to get up and do anything, they still need to hear the good news of Jesus, that he has come and that he sets people free. He has come and he has died for our sins. He has paid our debt, and he has risen again to give life and freedom to everyone who puts their trust in him. Doesn't matter what you look like. Doesn't matter what socioeconomic status you're in, where you work, what kind of car you drive, what kind of past you have. Jesus is in the business of forgiving people's sin and setting people free. And the good news is, if you're in the room today and you think to yourself, I am a terrific sinner, good news, Jesus is a better Savior. And if you turn to him and put your trust in him, his grace is enough to cover your sin. That's why he kept preaching the gospel. And church family, you know what we need? To keep preaching the gospel too. Don't miss verse 22 strengthening the souls of the disciples. Along the way, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So part of his story was, good news, folks, Jesus is in charge of the world. He has beaten sin. He has beaten death. And when they come at you and throw stones, just know that that's part of life when we enter the kingdom of God. That's just part of it right there. 
That's just part of it when hardships occur, when they arrest brothers and sisters from early reign church in China and stick them in jail and do all sorts of horrible things to them. They just know, as they said, we knew that persecution was coming and we were ready. It is through many trials that we must come into the kingdom of God. Inherent in the message that Paul preached was, that, was this, that hardships were normal part of the Christian life. He even tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He wrote to the Philippians. We looked at it last week. You have been given grace not only to believe in Jesus, yeah, but also to suffer for his sake. No. Those who miss the hardships of the cross also miss the prizes of the kingdom. And so it's important to say to new believers, hey, hardship's part of the deal. And it's an important thing to say to mature believers, hey, don't forget, hardships are part of the deal. It's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. A.W. Tozer, who was an um, author, pastor and author in the uh, middle part of the 20th century, said it this way. It's a little small, but I'll... Christ calls men to carry a cross. We tell them to have fun in his name. He calls them to forsake the world. We assure them, but if they but accept Jesus, the world is their oyster. He calls them to suffer... We call them uh, to enjoy all the bourgeois, the bougie, as they say these days, comforts that modern civilization affords. He calls them to self-abnegation and death. We call them to spread themselves like green bay trees or perchance to even to become stars in a pitiful fifth-rate zodiac. We help them aim low, is what he said. Who writes like that, by the way? That's awesome. He calls them to holiness. We call them to a cheap and tawdry happiness that would have been rejected with a scorn by the least of the Stoic philosophers. And here's the money part right here. Don't miss this. We, you and me, we can afford to suffer now. Why? We'll have a long eternity to enjoy ourselves. And our enjoyment will be valid and pure for it will come in the right way and at the right time. It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom don't worry, it's part of the deal. And in living that out, it becomes its own witness to the validity and the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Last thing. He, he, two more things, excuse me. Verse 23, he bet on the church. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So he was working to set the church up for success. He was invested and he was working to set the church up for success. I'm, I'm, uh, we're we're I'm kind of putting our hands, if you will, on spiritual leadership and we're putting our hand to the work uh, of the spiritual work of prayer for them, okay? So he's betting on the church. Why? Because Jesus bet on the church. He's not giving up. It's not always easy, but it's always worth it. And then lastly, verse 24, he finished what he was sent to do. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. So basically they're backtracking. They started at Derby and they're working their way back through all these churches uh, that they had worked with. And when they had spoken the word in Perga and they went down to Atalia and from there they sailed to Antioch there in Syria where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work, listen, that they had fulfilled. They did it. They were sent out to do something, and they came back, and they did it. 
And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. He finished what he was sent to do. I say that because this is an important piece. The the celebration at the end, the celebration at the end was better than the affirmation in the moment. You and I live in a culture where we want to be affirmed in the moment. And Paul said, oh, oh, I was sent out for something, and it's pretty hard right now, but listen, there's a celebration coming. I'm good. Like, I can keep doing hard because of the celebration that's coming. I don't need somebody to come along and be like, it's okay, it's okay. Like, I got this. I'm, I'm willing to do a hard thing now because the celebration at the end is better than the affirmation in the moment. Church family, may, be, may we be those kinds of people you talk about radical and countercultural and an affirmation in and of itself of the gospel. What if we didn't need everybody to come along and it's okay? It's okay. What if we said, I know there's a celebration at the end. And so I, I don't need this affirmation in the moment. Is it good to have that? Heavens, yes. But if we're going to finish what we were sent to do, If we're going to go live like we're going to start talking about next week, guess what? We're going to have to be thinking about the celebration at the end and not just the affirmation of this moment. And that's where I want to leave us, thinking about that right there. Out of these four things in particular, is there one of those that you need to do? Do you need to face something? Do you need to keep saying something? Do you need to place your bets, if you will, where Jesus' place is? Do you need to step up and and think about finishing whatever it means for you to finish what you were sent to do? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have a moment to respond. So if you need to gather your stuff or um, put it together, whatever, just do so. And let's have a moment to pray.